Samantha Weiner. I'm Jenny Wang, and you're listening to TechSetters. I remember seeing the Vogue feature of Carol Riley at nine months pregnant, highlighting her work in applied artificial intelligence and robotics. Carol is the CEO of a stealth healthcare startup. She previously co-founded Drive AI, an autonomous driving company that was acquired by Apple. She has been at the forefront of development in humanoid robotics, working on the Da Vinci surgical system, which allows for robot-assisted surgery. Carol was part of the young global leaders selected by the World Economic Forum, Forbes Top 50 Women in Tech, and to top it off, the creative advisor of the San Francisco Symphony. In today's episode, we discuss Carol's vision for the future of family planning care, how robots and humans can work together, and learn how creative thinkers can apply engineering skills to disrupt traditional industries. Carol, we have always admired how you've approached technology as culture and as art, from the artistry of designing robots to 3D printing your wedding bands and even naming your very cute daughter with the initials NN, like Neural Network. She's going to be a future tech setter for sure. (laughs) Uh, You've had so many fascinating roles in your career, and I'd love to start from the beginning. How did you first fall in love with technology and code? I actually grew up wanting to be a doctor, and I volunteered at the local hospital and realized that the doctors were working tirelessly day after day. And it was when I actually met a patient with a pacemaker that I realized that engineering helps scale being a doctor. And I think that really led me on the healthcare path. But to step it back, um, you know, I had a mom that was a flight attendant and a dad that was an entrepreneur engineer. And those two definitely influenced how I grew up. When I was eight, I had a pet hamster that actually ran loose in the house. And my oh, no. entrepreneur <laughs> my, my entrepreneur dad was really, uh, we were trying to figure out different ways to solve this. And how do we catch our hamster? I could never quite catch it. And we'd leave food out for it every night. So for project, my dad actually um, helped me design a, a better mousetrap. So we actually jerry-rigged a mousetrap and a large jar and put food out for the hamster and um, was able to catch it. And I, I remember the feeling of how cool using engineering and different evaluating like different types of designs and building something actually brought a lot of joy. And it was, it opened my eyes to how cool engineering could be. And engineering wasn't just about sitting in front of your computer, looking like you're hacking or, you know, talking about how beautiful your code was, but it was actually a way to gather the tools to solve a real life problem. And I think that as the problems got bigger and bigger, it helped to have like certain foundations and different ways to solve problems. Um, In my freshman year of college, I had to do a research project, and so I had chosen to pick a project of underwater robotics, and that really, really helped me go down this path. I I chose it not because it was a cool career, um, because a job of robotics didn't exist at that point, but because I had to do a research project, um, robotics was the coolest one. It allowed me to work on a team of mechanicals and electrical and computer scientists, and we got to... My first robot in college was an underwater robot that swam around the pool. And then um, later on, we built more and more sophisticated ones, such as ones that went deep sea diving in Monterey Bay to pick up test tubes that scientists had lost. 
So cool. Who knew that trying to catch your runaway hamster would lead you to a career in engineering and robotics? You never know. So I feel like, you know, it's all about picking whatever excites you. What I love about the way that your career path has flown is that, you know, it might not have been intentional from the very beginning, but what you've done is you've created this space where you've taken the skill of robotics and you've applied it to different areas that you were passionate about. So like you said, in school, you worked on underwater robotics, and then you went on and you founded a healthcare startup that was Tinkerbell Labs, where you created low-cost healthcare to make it more widely accessible. Now you're working on this stealth healthcare startup. How has your focus on the gaps in healthcare evolved over your career? I think because of my passion when I was younger to to be a doctor, I think that that's always stayed with me. When I went off to grad school, I I when I saw the Da Vinci robot, which is a two point one million dollar telesurgery robot, where a surgeon could sit on one side of the room and the patient could be thirty feet away, it could be halfway across the world. It, it it's this idea of telesurgery that was so fascinating that I really wanted to work with. And in grad school, one of the things I learned about the Da Vinci system was that while you can have magnified vision, hand tremor reduction, all these benefits, it actually didn't have any force feedback. So you couldn't feel whatever you were doing. And it was it was fascinating to figure out what is the role of the sense of touch during surgery and how critical is it? Because when you don't have it, you start to strain your other senses, such as sense of sight, where you're now looking for more visual cues, like is the tissue turning white? And so I was working on the role of force feedback. And then how do you grade surgeons? Because once you're in medical school, there's no way to keep testing. You can test them through questions or exams, but that doesn't show you how good they are as a surgeon. So I was really fascinated with how do you learn surgery? What does physical skill mean? So I really love the idea of how do humans learn to do a task and how do robots learn to do a task? And that's called artificial intelligence. And, and it was interesting to see the two parallels of, you know, how do you, and how do you feed that back? How does a robot help a human learn? And how do you help humans. So that was a lot of my work in graduate school. And afterwards, I went to go work at Intuitive Surgical uh, versus a med intern in helping to do you know, new types of surgeries. Uh, right now, you know, I'm really focused on, you asked the question of you know, family planning and innovations in healthcare. Like I'm extremely lucky that robotics and AI as a field has have taken off because when I went to high school and college, this was not a job to be had. So I think that's really important that you, you know, you not just plan for the world you see today, but you know you plan for what you can't see and where the future might go. And like to be a surgical roboticist or a self-driving car engineer was not a job that existed 20 <laughs> years ago. And these are things that will keep happening, right? As tech moves us forward, um, there's going to be new types of jobs. And that's why I think science fiction is so interesting because it it's so imaginative. And especially being a new mom of a like a 15-month-old right now, you know, I'm really interested in the future of what family planning looks like. So, you know, I, I believe that are so smart and so invested in their career. And sometimes it feels like there's that conversation about the trade-off being had between having a family or having a job. And I think all of this is doable. And I, I want to give young girls like the freedom of choice. So I think there's humongous tech innovation to be had in the healthcare world, uh, particularly in like the genetics side. What sort of set of tools provide the women of today to create and forge that path of tomorrow to be able to have control over how they're planning their future? I think there's so many things to do. And, and I, I want to just say that this is completely up to each individual person and how they, they yeah. choose to design their life. I just want everyone to go in 
you know, eyes wide open and fully aware because I do think that women generally are the the caregivers of their children and also the whole family. And they also are the financial planner spending decision maker as well. And so there's a lot of jobs on top of the job that you already have in the home. One advice I might give, like, I, I think it's extremely important for everyone to learn how to do practical life skills like cooking and, you know, like cleaning and laundry, like you need to have those skills. But I am also a huge proponent of if you can to outsource it. And I think one framework of how I think about my life is, you know, what is an hour of my time worth? And is it possible to outsource that so that I could do something else? I mean, I think time is the most precious commodity all of us have here on earth. I see it with myself and also with like my mom, you know, like we want to help and jump in. And um, so I think one thing is, you know, figure out what your time is worth and what you are worth and outsource things that once you've already gained the skill and your learning has plateaued you know, figure out if you can outsource that piece of your life and how do you reduce clutter in your head? So like at our house, we automate almost everything. Like the lights are automated. So I also like, for instance, do a huge to-do list every day. um, And I do it pen and paper because I'm OG like that. I think it's easier than all the digital. I've tried a ton of digital apps. So I write everything down in a notebook um, and it helps to walk and cross things off. Um, And on the healthcare planning side, I think that I'm a huge proponent also for uh, freezing eggs. I think that that gives you the freedom to not stress about dating and marriage. And I do think that's it's a controversial topic, but I'm a huge proponent for planning out life. There are a bunch of amazing female founders now creating startups in the egg freezing space like Kind Body, which is so incredible to see. And we know that your startup is in stealth, so... We don't want to give too many secrets on tech centers, but curious, like what have you learned so far on creating technology that is able to give women that freedom of choice that you mentioned, trying to balance that trade-off between having a career and having a family? Yeah, I I feel like in life sometimes it does feel like a rat race because you're looking at the person next to you who's got a similar job and a lifestyle. And the more interesting people I meet have not just followed these latter milestones, but someone who approached a problem in a different way or taken a different path. And I think it's this diversity of thought that in the challenge or obstacle that they've overcome that makes them more interesting. The traits that I interview people for, for jobs, is not just like, what have you done or where did you go? But it's more just to see like the distance traveled. So I want to hear where you started and where you ended up and what led you to those decisions where it's not such a clear cut path. For, for, for startups, you know, I, I, I think it's tremendous to have, to see so many startups coming up in the uh, family planning space. Most of them are males, surprisingly, and I, I think this new wave of startups are females, which I, which really delights me. Um, one thing I learned from previous startups is to just really run towards the toughest problems, and engineers are problem solvers. So, you know, whether it's self-driving car, whether it's healthcare, each of those fields are highly regulated, and I think they seem very challenging. They are very challenging, but I think there's tremendous impact in those type of companies. So I, I, I would say run towards tough problems. I think if you have a very easy company or you pick a very easy problem to solve, you'll have a lot of competitors, and that's extremely challenging. Really working with AI and robotics has taught me what it means to be human. And AI is so 
game changing at this point um, ever since 2014 when there's the breakthrough really with like Google Brain when it you realize that this was not just a slightly better algorithm this was tremendously different um, and it wasn't just data I mean this AI is will level us up on so many different things so I think that um, AI should be applied to some of the harder um, challenges and it has to be very human centric. I really connected with what you were saying about having AI be such a human centric field. And I also connected with the part that you spoke about when you're hiring, looking at the Delta in how far people have come. What advice do you have for people at the very early stages of their career paths? How do you stand out or how do you convey your experiences when you haven't had too many yet? Putting aside, you know, ego, I think it's important to to do the work, I think there's no substitute for experience. I do think that there there needs to be time where you know you are learning the system, you're observing everybody, you're learning how how you fit into this entire large system. But I do think that you have to know your worth. I don't believe in people working for free because I I don't think that that's fair, and I I don't think that that helps you learn. Um, I am very big on you know if if you start at an entry level role. Um, to learn as much as you can, not just doing your job, but also helping to volunteer for other tasks that you know other people might pass to you because they're so overwhelmed with their their work, or they might want to help you learn. So I would say that you know look for opportunities. Once you do a great job on yours, like don't not do your work and try to do other people's, but like you know I would say look for opportunities outside of your job. You know I think it's important to find a sponsor. It's it's not a like a lot of people ask me about mentorship. It, it's hard to just ask someone to be your mentor or sponsor. It has to come very naturally. It has to be a good fit. It has to be like a mutually beneficial relationship too. A mentor is, you know, is very different from a sponsor. Like a mentor is someone that you might call up for coffee once in a while. And a sponsor is someone who can actually help you through your job. Like they might be able to get you your promotion or um, they they understand they're in that, they're in the room that you want to be in. And yeah. They, yeah. So it's a very different thing. And you know, while mentors can help you in general of how to think through frameworks, um, it's really a sponsor that is helpful for your job. Yeah, such an important yeah. distinction. Yeah, and I think one other last thing, you know, while experience is extremely important, I think the, the, the most actionable advice that I would give to anyone starting out in their career is to read. And I think that, you know, reading gives you a lens, like it's because it, it's very expensive time-wise for someone to spend a one-on-one time with you to explain the basics, yeah. you know, and I would say reading gives you that perspective that you would never have gotten in this level of depth and intuition uh, that you gain from experience. I try to read like a hundred books a, a year wow. and that's, really, that's, that's hard to do. Um, I did it. I managed to do it last year when I was pregnant and I had a lot of time to read. And I would also say that the second piece of advice um, I would give is to teach and, you know, even though you're a beginner, teaching is sometimes the best way to learn. When I was a first year, a second year master's student, I actually taught a haptics class. I was still learning about haptics. I was still one of the junior ones in our PhD lab, but I taught a haptics class and that helped me learn, you know, just like all the different ways someone could mess up, you know, like I had to grade everyone's homeworks. Yeah. And so that was a great way to learn um, about a subject. I absolutely love that. I used to be part of a tech club when I was doing my undergrad at Columbia, and I remember the best piece of advice I got was as I was learning a new topic to write down all of my questions. And that was one of the best ways to build a curriculum to teach other beginners. 
And so I, I really, I love, I love that piece of advice. And I think that it's really underrated because it's so uncomfortable to do, but at the same time, you're able to forge a path that becomes so much easier for others because you're able to take your perspective and the questions you had and push, you know, help someone else have, have fewer obstacles moving forward. Yeah. And I sometimes think like my best teachers are also like my TAs, for instance, because they're still young. They just kind of finished it and they have time to help and they, they, they just connected. So, uh, so much easier than someone who's probably been teaching the class for like 20, (laughs) 30 years and, you know, has, um, isn't as invested in teaching anymore. So. And when you were, yeah. And when you were talking about reading a hundred books a year, I was really, I was just thinking about training your brain, like an AI almost, or feeding it like a machine learning model. And you're just sort of inputting all of this data and you're, you're able to absorb it, having to diversify it, making sure that you don't have data that's all about one industry or one area. And I was like picturing this like brain AI. I wanted to get your thoughts on that because you've, you've had so many different applications of robotics in health and in underwater robotics and in your education in general what does the future of robotics like humanoid robotics and society look like and how does that now play into the future of work yeah that that's a that's a heavy question um you know i i I feel like too often people when they think about when people think about robotics like the general population they think about you know killer robots or it's these sci-fi versions of the world of robotics and i want to just state that we're still very early on you know it's hard to get like our robots to, you know, do one task. I think the general rule of thumb at this point is um, AI is, you know, uh, can automate roughly what someone can, it takes a human one second to do. So, you know, like yes, no questions or what we everyone hopes to get to is general AI, which is what you see in sci-fi and robots who can think on their own. And so at, at this point, jobs that might be automated would be low-skilled, more uh, labor-intensive jobs, and so we're hoping to automate jobs that perhaps people don't want. For instance, one of the things that uh, is robotic is like a bank teller. You know, like certain parts of a bank teller job is automated. You have an ATM, which you can take money in and out of, and uh, do some of these tedious tasks. Today, we actually have more bank tellers than we did before ATMs because. Uh, while the ATM does the simpler tasks, the more complicated customer service-like jobs has opened up um, and it freed up the human to do more complicated tasks that require human-machine interaction. I love that you're outsourcing the pieces of your life that you don't necessarily want to do as much and how humanoid robotics can play into that. Yeah, and I I would say that it's, um, you know, it's super important to be human-centric, right? Everything we design is is how do you help society and how do you help people? It's not just doing something for more power or like something more evil. You know, you start thinking about, oh, wow, like what are human limitations? My work has really been on how do humans and robots complement each other to become superhuman? Like how can we work together and become better? I'm trying to really utilize their strengths. So I don't want a robot just to do what I can do. That's not interesting at all. And I don't want to hit a button and have it do something tedious because I do think that like robots also aren't just slaves. It's about trying to understand each other in different ways. You know, all humans aren't created equal. And so I think, you know, if you can help 
use tech to make society more fair, that's also very interesting. And speaking of automation and what it means to be human or what tasks should be done by humans versus robots, in 2015, you co-founded Drive AI, which was an autonomous vehicle startup that raised $77 million from top VCs and also then sold to Apple in the span of only four years. Why did you choose to tackle this very difficult problem of autonomous vehicles? So, I, I mean, I thought that I was going to stay in the healthcare field. Um, I was working on surgical robotics at that time and also had this uh, current startup in my mind to start um, in 2014. And um, it, oh, it's a long it was, time coming then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I was actually, um, I went in, in 2008, I actually went to Stanford. I went to Johns Hopkins for graduate school. I actually spent a year out at Stanford in the self driving car lab. Uh, in Sebastian Thrun's lab, he started Google X and won the self-driving car um, DARPA Urban Challenge, the second one. Um, oh, and wow. I was in the, yeah, so it was I was in this lab surrounded by self-driving cars, like, um, and hadn't it hadn't clicked to do it because I was like, it's a cool toy, but like you know, I don't like <laughs> it's not what I do. I, I save lives. I, I work on surgical robotics, and um, you know, roughly around 2014, I was uh, brought into. Um, a Stanford self-driving car lab to help them think through product and regulation and legal. And, you know, I, when I started doing more research on it, uh, I realized how parallel the two tracks were. And I started seeing that it, it was ridiculous that like 1.6 million Americans die every year from car accidents alone. That's like the largest cause of death for young adults. In in my mind, I was like, wow, this is really cool for two reasons. You know, like one, this could be the first mass scale robot out in the wild because normally robots are around caution tapes and ORs, you know, they're highly protected, but this is like the first human robot that exists in the world. And we'd have to figure out what new laws and how these robots behave. Uh, And then two, I thought it was very interesting that this was almost like a preventative medicine. If I can stop car crashes, it would lessen the burden on operating rooms and all the surgery that they would have to do. So this was, um, those were two main motivations for me wanting to start Drive that um, I actually seed funded the company, actually used money that I had saved what could have been like a huge wedding. And I believe in myself and the company. And so we started with a $50,000 seed funding and it was a, it was a really fun four years uh, growing the company from the eight of us to uh, over the close to 200 people and I'm so impressed that you seed funded your company with your wedding budget. That's basically like you you bet on yourself in order to accelerate this vision of preventing car crashes and ultimately trickle down to less surgeries, more life saved, and hopefully more families, uh, more families not being torn apart, and you know more mothers being able to go home to their children, which is kind of full circle back to what you're working on now. <laughs> Yeah, and you took this human-centric approach, which really differentiated Drive AI from other autonomous vehicle companies because you were thinking about the entire human as opposed to an approach where it's just trying to think of, okay, we have this cool technical ability. How can we possibly apply it? It was more starting from the problem and trying to build out a comprehensive solution. Yeah, and I think that the future of self-driving is going to be drastically different. You know, we started, for instance, in horse and carriage, and like the world has completely changed the design around the car. And so I really, and you know, it's still human-centric in the sense that there's these rules for pedestrians. As self-driving car technology gets there, that 
you know, that's why there's so many different voices and such a diverse group of people working on this problem because there's, it's, it's so much more than just driving from point A to point B. Like the whole world will need to change to accommodate, you know, how does the human and how does this self-driving robot now interact and what are the laws and what, what do these cities look like and what can change? We don't, for instance, we don't need parking lots, et cetera, anymore. Um, so, so I'm fascinated to see that phase come through and as people's minds change with the acceptance of self-driving cars. So like you, Sam and I also love fashion and beauty and really resonate with what you said about changing people's minds. And many people might not know that you are a commercial model throughout grad school, were the first female engineer on the cover of Make magazine, served as a brand ambassador for Guerlain, and to top it off, you were featured in Vogue at nine months pregnant under your nickname, <laughs> The Mother of Robots. We loved that article. Can you tell us about those experiences and that moniker and how you're trying to break down stereotypes of what an engineer should look or dress like? And I, I want to highlight that I'm not by any means like um, a supermodel, anything of the sort, but had fun with it. It felt like a double life because I think so much, there's so few female engineers, especially in grad school that I, I didn't tell anybody uh, really. I just went on jobs and, you know, sometimes during the day would disappear for blocks of hours uh, to do a shoot, but I wouldn't tell my lab mates where I went because it, it, I didn't want, I didn't want people to think about me differently or I wanted to be taken seriously through time that I've relaxed that. And it's not like you have to be one or the other, or it felt like a secret life where it was, it was confusing at times because sometimes you get like a backhanded compliment, like, Oh, you're, you're an engineer. Oh, you're so pretty. That's weird. You know? And so it, it felt like I had to pick one path or the other. And so I chose not to talk about doing any commercial work during grad school at all. And I, this is probably like one of the, the first time I've ever talked about this out loud. So um, what was so awesome about Carly is that, you know, she, she went the other direction where she was doing really well in her modeling career and then wanted to cross into tech. You know, women, everyone is multifaceted. And I think it's, it makes them more interesting to be at the intersection of two, two different disciplines. And I think um, when you can speak the language of both worlds, it can be even more valuable. Uh, when Gerlain contacted me, I think, you know, one week later, I was um, on a plane to Beijing and we did our whole like, two-day photo shoot. And I actually shot a commercial in Mandarin. And the, uh, the makeup artist who was there said that she'd done over thousands of people, like from movie stars and models. And this, I was her first scientist. You asked the question about the mother of robots. Um, I... <laughs> I'm a big uh, Game of Thrones fan, and um, I'm always constantly building robots, fixing robots, nursing them back to health, buying robots. You know, I feel like um, I'm always adopting a robot or there's always something around. So one of my friends made a joke. It just kind of stuck. That's how I got the Mother Robots moniker. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that story with us. Sam and I have definitely had experiences where we ask each other, what should we wear to the office? Is it is it appropriate to wear heels to this tech conference? Like, do we need to hide the fact that we like fashion in order to not be dismissed as frivolous or as like not legit enough in a technical setting or a technical workspace. So thank, thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, one thing I will add is that like, you know, I think during interviews people ask, cause so many of the Silicon Valley, so many of the, um, the CEOs, they, they have a uniform, right? It's like a hoodie and something that they wear. <laughs> Patagonia. Yeah, and so when I was, <laughs> like the VCs, I was doing like fashion interviews. They would ask like, "What do you wear? Do you have a uniform that you wear?" Like my black turtleneck, 
Um, no, no, I feel like it's it's more creative to be able to have self-expression and pick your outfits. And it's it's a it's a fun creative side um uh, to do. And coding is so creative that I'm it's it's uh that I'm surprised that, you know, um so many people have uniforms, but I guess they're trying to lower their cognitive workload of not having to think. One of the pieces of advice that you've shared that I absolutely love, and you've done this in your own life, is that you received advice that you should reinvent yourself every 10 years. What's one piece of actionable advice that you'd like to give to our listeners? I'll circle back on the the same thing you had asked earlier. Uh, My long-winded answer is definitely to to want to just read like crazy on many different subjects because it gives you so much perspective. Um, and then two, to, to really teach, like, I would say like, whatever you learn, try to teach it. So, uh, those, are, those two are like the, really the best way to learn. And also just to keep learning, keep challenging yourself. And one last question, is there anything you want our listeners to know or be aware of for your new stealth startup? Like, where can we sign up? <laughs> <laughs> we when will we get to know? We're just dying. Oh. We love the mystery. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. No pressure. I, we will come out of stealth once we can take customers. So I do think that that would be like the, the best time to do it because it, it's such a letdown to hear about a company and then not be able to try it out and give back and play with it. But I will say that on like maybe a separate project, like the side hustle um, has been that I joined the San Francisco Symphony as their creative advisor last year. So there will be like fun AI and music and art projects coming out. Um, can you give us a sneak peek of that yes yes so that you know San Francisco just recently got a new conductor Esapeka who is amazing and um, you know he put together like this collaborative team of eight of us and everyone else is a um, like Grammy winner Pulitzer Prize winner they're very strong artists and he wanted one AI scientist so my projects are really at this intersection of um, AI and art and um, I didn't want to do something gimmicky, like, you know, like a robot conductor. Um, but I wanted to really figure out how do you enhance that user experience and how do you actually bring AI into the art world in a, um, in a deep way? And, and so, you know, we have three projects lined up. So um, there are a musical element to it. There isn't a physical art piece, you know, and then there isn't a very interactive installation. We're trying to capture different types of senses and have it be a very interactive experience. Well, please count Sam and I in for coming to see it when it finally is announced. <laughs> so to, to wrap things up, we also have a round of bite-sized questions like computer bite. The first question is, what are three things that are always on your desk? I definitely believe in charging, um, charging yourself and your computers. I have, I'm always low on battery, so I've got my phone chargers, my laptop chargers. I also have like a water kettle and coffee and lotion and then I always second have a um, my clipboard and, and paper and planner next to me to make sure I can bust through this uh, the, the long checklist and not go down <laughs> rabbit holes. What's one class every college student should take? Um, I would say that no matter what your major in, you know, the, the obvious answer is a coding class. I, I do think that um, intro to coding is like the most popular class, especially if at Stanford, for instance, my husband teaches um, like the I think the most popular class, the the AI course. It's it's helpful for anyone, no matter what your job is. the The real answer I have is I think that what every college student should take is an ethics class. I went to Santa Clara University, which 
uh, for undergrad and it's a Catholic Jesuit school. We had to take three ethics classes and I didn't realize that not everyone does. And I've started to realize that, especially if you're building tech that impacts thousands of people, you really have to have a strong moral compass. And we started seeing that, um, you know, it, it, you're making tough calls that affect a lot of people. And I think to take an ethics class is extremely important. And I went to Hopkins for grad school and, you know, there's, there's so much medicine and uh, there's the whole Hippocratic oath of not harming anyone that was so instilled. So the two two academic schools I went to were so strongly instilled in ethics that I, I, I think that was probably one of the most valuable classes I've taken. Which brands or magazine is at the top of your bucket list to work with? Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, just because I love them and um, love flipping through them physically. I would say that uh, the one that I'm probably most interested in working with uh, for a magazine is any youth-based one, so like Elle, Teen Vogue, anything online. And then any brand would be like Tory Burch or anything that supports like an on-demand lifestyle or helps people with like either like food delivery and like Instacart good eggs or workout, like ClassPass is, is awesome. And you've published an amazing children's book already about growth mindset. What's the next children's book that you want to write? Ah, uh, so so the one I actually started before the making a splash. Um, it was it's it's Ada Baden's about a kid roboticist. So that's been on the back burner forever, but it's super super cute and it tells the stories from a um, how humans and robots can work together. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to read that one. So thank you so much, Carol. This has been such a pleasure interviewing you. You're welcome. Thanks for, for chatting. Tech Setters is a Code with Classy podcast powered by If Then. If we can inspire a woman in STEM, then she can change the world.